Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, for it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the spirit, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, we need his help, so let us pray together. Father, we thank you for these words recorded to us uh, by your chosen apostles preserved throughout the ages for your people to be instructed, to be comforted, to be reminded of all that you've done for your people through Christ. We need your spirit now to illuminate it to our hearts that we might hear and understand, that we might see your glory today. Please grant this to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've continued through... Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, I told you early on, every week you're going to be hit with another verse that you probably know, perhaps even by heart, not even trying to know it by heart, because there are so many nuggets of gold, crystallizations of central truths of the gospel throughout this letter, and today is, of course, no different. And as we come to this part of the letter, it almost looks like we're being introduced to Paul's conclusion. And though we are not quite there yet, he begins our passage today by saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul is not teeing up the conclusion of his letter quite yet, but he wants to give them a particular warning along with an exhortation. In fact, the most common theme throughout Philippians is this call to rejoice. Paul has been rejoicing in his sufferings. He's asked them to have the same joy. He's sending back Epaphroditus to go that they might have joy. He wants them to be filled with joy by the way the gospel has infiltrated their lives, that God's work in and through them ought to bring them joy just as it brings him joy. 
But he turns now and says, we are to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. And then he says it's no trouble for him to write again to them the same thing that he probably told them as he was there in person. There's no trouble for him to have written this. There's no trouble for him to have sent back the messengers. In fact, it's for their good. And he gives them this warning about false teachers. But as we look at our passage today, I want us to kind of focus in on one central theme that we'll get to as that common verse maybe we know about counting all things as loss. Paul, as he warns about these false teachers, is warning about their sense of having importance, their sense of righteousness, their sense of gain, the things that they are calling the church to view as important that Paul is telling them are not the things that are important. There are many things that we can gain in our lives, things that seem more important than others. Of course, when we look at this passage, we're going to see a lot of religious gain, things that can make us look religious, make us look holy, make us seem important within the people of God. We have different things vying for our attention in our cultural moment, things that cause us to want to gain prominence. There's always a desire to gain something, to achieve something. And we are prone to put confidence in the wrong things, just as the Philippians are going to be prone to listen to these false teachers and have confidence in the wrong things. And Paul wants to give them the right path. So we're going to look at three things today. First, false gain. What is it, the false gain that Paul is warning them against? Two, true gain. What is the gain Paul has in mind? What does he want them to truly gain? And three, ultimate gain. First, false gain. We look at verse 2 as Paul begins his warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Now, we might read, look out for the dogs and think, you know, he might slobber on you or jump on you or something like that. You know, labradoodles and poofy little dogs that yip at your ankles. But at the time, in the first century, dogs are not cuddly creatures. They roam the streets scavenging. They were violent and vicious, indeed, probably most of the time used as guards. Dirty, unclean animals within the people of God, for sure. Look out for the dogs. Look out for wolves, if we might even think in our time. The Bible uses that language as well. Look out for the evildoers. Now, these are people that aren't outside of the church. It's not that Paul is saying, look, look out for those people who are trying to make you be Jewish only and reject Christ. These are people that are within the body, within the church, who claim to be Christians, but are actually dogs, are actually evil. It's very strong language Paul is using to denounce these people. He's making a very clean, clear point here. And he says, what, what about them? They mutilate the flesh. In fact, that's a very strong rebuke to what they are proposing. In the Old Covenant, 
Circumcision was required by God. And now he's calling it a mutilation of the flesh. It's a disparaging comment even to the covenant sign to the people of God of the old covenant. But he's saying, it's so wrong to have confidence in that sign that it's not circumcision, it is mutilation. It's a deformity. The things they're calling you to do are evil and wrong. For, verse 3, we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh. One of the ways in which Christ fulfills the Old Testament signs and seals. As we think about this imagery of circumcision, it's kind of a weird, gross, bloody situation. But the Bible actually talks about Christ being our circumcision, that on the cross, he was cut off. And so, we who belong to Christ, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, are the true circumcision. The ones who have been circumcised in the heart, whose hearts have been cut. Who belong to the one who was cut off for his people. We're not putting any confidence in external fleshly changes. Then Paul begins to make an argument in verse 4. Though I, ha- I myself have reason for confidence in my flesh. If anyone else he has, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So these Judaizing people in the church, these Christians that want you to have to feel like you have to follow Jewish law... Well, they might have confidence, but I have more. If we're going to follow the law, if we're going to check the boxes, if we're going to see who's truly a Jew, well, here's what Paul says. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a bold statement to say you were blameless under the law. Paul was at the highest echelon in the Jewish community. Well-trained, zealous, passionate, persecutor of the church. He was an apologist. He's a thoroughbred. False gain looks at the outward circumstances of our lives. False gain is really has two categories. Some of it is passive and some of it is active. Look at Paul's list. Okay? He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's not a thing he did. In fact, this word here, the circumcision on the eighth day, it's actually a, a terminology. Uh, he's an eighth dayer. It would have been one of the things that uh, perhaps would be an irregularity if you didn't get circumcised on the eighth day. The commandment was for that to happen. And so he's an eighth-dayer, right? Something happened to him. His parents were faithful enough to bring him upright, to be there, to be faithful. And he's ethnic, right? He passively receives an ethnic identity. He's from the people of Israel. He's born in the line of Abraham. So he has religious gain. 
by being born into the people of God. He has ethnic gain by being named among the people of Israel. These are all passive things. He has familial gain. His family is prominent. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He has pride. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. All of these are given to him. Circumstantial. In fact, they might look to those types of things and say, see how God has blessed him, how he has been set apart, born into such a noble family. And then there are things that Paul did beyond that. Not only did he get this passive gain in life, this circumstantial upbringing, he actively built upon it. And this is where we begin to see real self-righteousness take root. Paul calls himself a Pharisee. Now we think of that as like the, most, the worst thing you could possibly call yourself because we are 2,000 years after Jesus came and he rebuked the Pharisees so many times. But at the time, that was a well-respected class of people, well-educated. Paul knew his theology. He was trained formally. He knew better than most people. He knew better probably than these men in the church who are trying to lead the people astray. As to zeal, Paul cared a lot. He knew the truth and he cared a lot about it, though he was blind. And so he became a persecutor of the church. If there was anybody who was righteous in the eyes of the religious leaders of the day, it was Paul who went around rounding up Christians. In terms of the law keeping the feasts, following the Ten Commandments, all of the things that would have been expected as a religious man, a Pharisee like Paul, he calls himself blameless. He was the good kid in school. He got straight A's, never got detention. Paul has this outward righteousness that was both passively given to him and actively added on. In his life, as he continued on, and he is calling out these false teachers to say, if there's anybody to boast, it should be me. As we think about our context, this isn't typically where we find ourselves. These categories don't quite fit. But I think there are ways in which we, too, receive passively and actively build upon our Christian identity in a way that causes us to seek the same false gain. We want this outward appearance. We want to point to something in our past or point to the things we do as a means through which we validate ourselves, boast in our standing before God. So, the Christian passive reception, I was baptized in such and such church the right way, by the right words, in the right time frame. Ethnic gain, where do we put our trust as we think about our ethnicities? Well, we can all sing that great song together. I'm proud to be an American. Do we not look to even where we are born and find pride? Find our identity? Familial gain. 
Perhaps we are the son or daughter of somebody important. Or a man who is a good man. Oh, they are the son of such and such. Oh, those kids over there, you know their parents are just the nicest people. We can be born into a religious situation where we have benefits. We've been brought into the church passively. We are given the promises of the covenant. We can be born into a country that has certain privileges. We can be raised in a house that's a blessing to us. Those are all passive things, but they're also things that can cause us to have false gain. That we can look to those things for our ultimate worth and value and ultimately our standing before God. But beyond that, where the real danger comes is the way in which we can be actively adding to this gain. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He studied. We We can learn a lot. There's a lot of resources out there for Bible studies. We can send our kids to Awana clubs and memorize Bible verses. We can go to Christian schools and learn all sorts of facts. We can become great apologists for the Christian faith. Now, these aren't bad things. It wasn't bad for Paul to have been trained. In fact, it's working out for the benefit of the church that he knows so well, the scriptures. And yet, before God intervened, it was of no value to him. Zeal. Paul was zealous. He persecuted the church. We can be zealous in our Christian faith. And that's a good thing, right? We can attend services. We can serve as musicians. We can be greeters. We can set up and take down. We can host small groups in our homes. We can do all sorts of good things, and we ought to. Blameless, Paul calls himself. We create little cultures in our world just as they did back then, of what we consider to be a blameless Christian life. It often turns a blind eye to common sin and has a particular picture of what a good Christian family ought to look like. So we can look back at ourselves and think, yeah, I am blameless. Ultimately, the problem here, the fundamental error is not that these things are wrong, that we shouldn't do these things, that we shouldn't have been baptized at the right time, that we shouldn't have been born in this country or have good parents, that we shouldn't have understanding of the scriptures memorized, that we shouldn't Christianly teach our kids, we shouldn't be zealous to serve in the church or ought to try to live a good life. The error here is that we take things that are good and we make them great. We make them ultimate. That is what's happening in the midst of the church. Religious people who have come in and want to take things that are at least neutral, perhaps even bad, as Paul talks about the moving on from circumcision, but ultimately an outward appearance, an action-based righteousness, 
a call to say, you must do these things in this way, follow the law the way we do, in order to be made right with God. These good things become our source of confidence. They become our source of righteousness. They are the things that we point to when we want to be reassured whether or not we are okay. We all have them. It is a danger we all face as those who participate in the visible church. In fact, the longer we've been in the church, the earlier we entered in, the more prone we are to look at these things and to look for confidence in them. But Paul goes on to say in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, all of these things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul was a very important man. He had a life ahead of him that would have been prominent. He probably could have lived a life of some luxury, certainly of importance and reverence of the people. He looks back to all of these things. The Hebrew of Hebrews. A Pharisee. A leader. He says, I count them not as gain. Those are not things that have benefited me. In fact, I count them as loss. But why does he count them as loss? He counts them as loss for the sake of Christ. And we get to our point number two, true gain. If this is false gain, if external circumstances, if active participation is false gain, what is true gain? True gain is for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. there's ever a Bible verse to remember, it is verse 8. So much of our priorities are spent looking good, feeling good, reminding ourselves of where we've been, who we belong to. But those will fall short if they don't ultimately find their rest and the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. In fact, we can have all of these other things and not have that. There's a recent scandal in the Christian world, an apologist who many thought to be one of the greatest apologists of our day. He was intellectually superior to most Viral YouTube videos of him debunking attacks against Christianity. He knew all of the right answers, appeared to have all of the external things that would point to a true faith. And yet now in the wake of a scandal, we see it was no gain at all. What Paul wants the Philippians to know, what God's word wants us to know, is there is nothing greater than the worth of knowing Christ. 
It is the thing that doesn't come from external participation, but by the internal working of God's Spirit in the hearts of his people. Paul goes on to say, For Christ's sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. Look, Paul has literally lost everything. He's a homeless, itinerant preacher who's in jail. He's at the mercy of this church who's just brought him a financial gift that he might have food to eat while he's in jail. He has suffered the loss of everything. And as he has lost everything, he has gained even more. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen to this section. Verse 8, surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 8, may know Christ, gain Christ. Verse 9, found in him, found in Christ. And in the center of this hope, this gain, is verse 9. Paul had the greatest righteousness you could possibly have in his day. And he counts it as nothing. In fact, the word here, rubbish, your coloring sheet today, kids, is a garbage can. But that doesn't even go so far. Some commentators even think the word rubbish is a swear word. Paul's language is so strong that even these good things, all of the things he could look to for boasting, it's refuse. It's to be flushed away. It's in the way. It's preventing him from gaining Christ. Being found in him Not trusting in his own righteousness, but this is where our true hope finds its rest. But having the righteousness from God that depends on faith. As we look to these lists that we may put together, I made a list today, right? We might think of ourselves and think back to the ways in which we have confidence. The good things we've done. The theologically informed positions we hold our ability to be apologetically engaged with our culture the way in which we feel morally superior to others whether or not those things are good or bad or neutral Paul finds his confidence we must find our confidence in this Those things make no righteous standing before God. Our righteousness is dependent on faith in Christ alone. If you are in Christ, if you have gained him and been found in him, like the Apostle Paul is talking about here, God doesn't love you more when you read the Bible and when you don't. God doesn't love you more 
when you serve. He doesn't love you less when you don't. You aren't in a different pecking order in the church. Those who have served on committees are more righteous than others. This is the way that we are all wired to think. We all live in a works-based world where we are rewarded for our good things, rewarded for hard work, and we are demerited for the times in which we fail. But that is not the gospel. We are all equals in the people of God not because of our external circumstances, not because of our active participation in the covenant, but because of Christ's righteousness given equally to each one of us. It's the only way that we can have clear standing before God. Compared to Christ's righteousness, every other good thing we could possibly do is rubbish. It's Refuse. It's excrement. I was listening the other day to a commentator talking about the love of God. We often, you know, have the theological category, right? That God loves his people, that he loves you. If I was to ask you, does God love you? You would say yes. But what if we asked, does God like you? Most of us would probably cringe. Of course God loves me. He, he has to because of what Jesus did. But I don't think he actually likes me. It's an interesting question for us to ask something for us to think about the way in which maybe we've even perverted our view of God's love towards his people. Because we think God loves me, but in order for God to like me, I need to do these things. Like he has to love me, but he doesn't have to like me. And the only way he'll like me is if I'm good enough. Brothers, that is the most treacherous trap we can fall into. It is exactly what Paul is pointing us away from. These people are saying, look, if you want God to like you, you have to do these things. Prove how much God should like you. God loves you and likes you so much. That he sent Christ to die for you. That all of the clamoring for your own self-righteousness that just looks like used toilet paper. God gives you perfect cleanliness, perfect righteousness, and he accepts you just as he would accept Jesus Christ himself. When we fully grasp God's love and his like for us, it frees us from this cycle. In fact, it empowers us to do these things with true faith, knowing that we're not earning our standing before God, 
but instead we're doing them that we might grow in our understanding, our knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we might gain him, that we might grow in our love for him. That, like Paul, we may know the power of his resurrection. There's a quote from a documentary movie about Martin Luther. I'm not sure of the historic nature of the quote, but it paints well one of the problems at the time of the Reformation. And that is that people were often told to go do all sorts of things. Go to this place and see the splinter of the cross that Jesus died and Go to this holy church and you know, kiss the step that the apostle went up and down. Right? All these different things that people would go and do. Give this amount of money to remove this amount of judgment. Martin Luther wanted to throw away all of these things. And one of his fellow priests says, Brother Martin, if we take away all of the people's crutches, what shall we replace them with? If we take away all of these things that hold them up, that give them confidence, that they can have some sense of righteousness before God, what shall we replace them with? And Luther says, Christ. This is what Paul is pointing us back to. Time and time again, as we feel self-righteousness rise up, as we look at ourselves and compare one another, as we want to have true assurance before God, it will not come through external actions, but dependent on faith alone, that we might gain the righteousness we could never have on our own. This is true gain. Christ is our true gain He is the great equalizer. Think about a church in Philippi. It's a prominent city in Rome. It was no doubt filled with a mixture of people, perhaps some even within the Roman stratosphere. In fact, Paul's talking about preaching to the Roman guard. People of highest prominence and those in the lowliest levels of society are now equals. Peasant farmers and royal families, equals, both deemed righteous only by Christ alone. There is no more privilege in oppressed. There is no more wealthy and poor. Because all we have to gain is Christ himself and his righteousness. It is the great equalizer. In the church, it is the great equalizer between God and man, what Christ has done for us. But not only that, not only do we have this true gain, Paul longs for ultimate gain. Our ultimate gain, as Paul tells us in verse 11, is through our death. We live in a very medically advanced era where life is prolonged, death has been sanitized, we hide sick and dying people out of the eyes of the public. But when a loved one is stricken ill or a close friend or even in our own life we begin to question our mortality, the veil of sanitization of death is removed. 
Because not only do we have Christ's perfect righteousness in this life, that God loves us and likes us now, but that's not our ultimate hope. Indeed, it is a further outworking of that same truth. Paul says he is going to become like Christ through his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. There was a recent study published uh, that talked about people's most uh, regretted thing on their deathbed, what they said. Top five things. I wish I had lived more true to myself instead of living to the expectations of others. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so much. Number three, I wish I had courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with friends. Number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. There are some things in life that are so basic that we often take them for granted as we pursue greater things. We pursue a reputation or money or success. But once we realize we've lost some of the basic things, this list of things is so basic. I wish I would have been more honest. I wish I would have allowed myself to be happy. Oh, we weigh ourselves down seeking after false gain so much. But then when we see that those things that are more dear to our hearts have been removed, that we've missed out, we see how worthless those greater things truly are. What good is a smartphone if you don't have water to drink? What good is a retirement account if you don't have bread to eat? There is this desperation for the ultimate gain that Paul knows dearly. He knows his life is on the line at any given moment. He has faced death many times. And he rejoices. Remember, his opening word here. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul not only loses his reputation, he loses even his life. Suffering for the sake of Christ, that he might gain Christ, the author of life himself, and have hope of being in him, united to that Savior who was put to death. But remember what Jesus told his disciples. He said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Our fear of trusting in Christ alone, apart from external circumstances, is terrifying to us. The question Jesus asked was, do you believe this? Are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to not gain your own reputation, to lose your righteousness, to lay it aside, to no longer boast in the things you have done? Are you willing to not be important and to make Christ important? Do you want people to know you? Do you want people to know who you belong to? Where do we find our confidence 
What is the gain we truly seek after? Brothers and sisters, there is so much to gain in our lives. We have access to tremendous opportunities to do great things, experience incredible opportunities. We have limitless information in our pockets. But what we really need is Christ. When we find ourselves on our deathbeds, if we have the opportunity to reflect, I hope our desire would be that we would have experienced more of Christ. That we wouldn't look back and think about how we've wasted our time seeking after good things at the expense of the true gain of Christ. Far more than that, that we would rejoice that even in our death we have hope because we belong to the resurrection and the life. And we have come ever more closely to joining in him with that glorious truth and ultimate gain. As we will no longer have doubts, but we will see him face to face and we will know him fully. That is our ultimate gain, brothers and sisters. May we strive to gain it. May we cast away anything that gets in our way. May we die to ourselves and our own self-righteousness and instead depend upon the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that Christ gives us everything we need. Lord, even if you took away our breath this moment, we would be secure in him. Help us to lay aside all of our own righteous ambition and to cling to the cross, to cling to Christ. Lord, fill our hearts with faith that we might believe on him, that we might be found in him, that we might come to know him more fully, Lord. Help us now to turn from our sin and turn to him. Help us to experience how you love us and how you like us because of what Christ has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.